Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., one of the hosts of the channel. I'm very excited today to be talking with, with our guest, Dr. Rustam Urimbayev. Dr. Urimbayev is a researcher and associate professor in the Sociology of Law Department at Lund University. He is also a senior researcher in Russian and Eurasian Studies at the Alexandria Institute at the University of Helsinki. He earned his PhD in in the sociology of law at Lund University in 2013, and he is interested broadly in corruption and informality, socio-legal approaches to migration, Muslim identities in prison contexts, Islamic public administration, Russian and post-Soviet studies, and of course, Central Asian studies. And today we'll be discussing his book, published last year by California University Press, The title of that book is Migration and Hybrid Political Regimes, Navigating the Legal Landscape in Russia. Rustem, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Nick. It's an honor to be interviewed. Uh, Thank you. And yeah, um, so let, you know, let's jump right into our conversation today. Um, And I'd like to begin uh, just by asking, you know, this is kind of standard, but asking about your academic career your interest in, in the very specific field of sociology of law, and, and then how you came to this project, uh, which looks at Uzbek labor migrants in Russia. Mm, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, if I talk briefly about my background, I myself, I come from Uzbekistan, and uh, uh, I moved to Sweden in 2008 uh, to do my PhD in sociology of law and my PhD thesis was about uh, living law and political stability in Uzbekistan. And then after finishing my PhD, I wanted to do something different uh, because I uh, come from a village rural of Fergana in Uzbekistan. And then at the time in 2013, it was a peak, of, uh, peak period of Central Asian labor migration to Russia. And then then this seemed fascinating to me. And then at that time, this topic was largely under-researched, especially from socio-legal perspective. And then, then I wanted to study this. And I applied for Swedish Research Council postdoctoral scholarship grant and with a project about migration and legal cultures in post-Soviet context, specifically focusing on Uzbek labor migration to Russia. And this application, postdoc application, turned out to be successful, and I got three-year postdoc grant uh, from Swedish Research Council. And this is how this project started. And then this was, as I said, this was uh, one of the peak points of the labor migration. And at the same time, this project was very timely in the sense that Russia started introducing very restrictive laws and policies in uh, aim to control the Central Asian uh, migration. 
And this this is how this project emerged, and I started my fieldwork uh, in 2014 in, in Russia. So this is how briefly the story of this of this project. Yeah, um, that's really great, and and uh, you know I already it, it brings a couple things to mind, which is one I'd love to hear maybe towards the end of the interview, uh, if you have any insight into how. Um, the conditions for Uzbek labor migrants have changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and also maybe um, I saw that this, I just saw this morning that the Biden administration is planning to uh, bring new sanctions against Russia. So maybe we could talk about um, the relevance of this topic in the present. But um, before we get there, I'd like to ask if you could, you, you mentioned in your comments that, um, was it, tw- uh, around 2013 um, was kind of this peak for um, Uzbek labor migration to Russia. Could you give us an overview of the history of um, Uzbek and Central Asian labor migration to Russia? When does it begin? Um, It's my understanding that um, this is really only a phenomenon after the 2000s. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, after the collapse of Soviet Union in the 90s, uh, migration was mainly the, uh, on, in the opposite direction, direction. Many ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking people migrated back from Central Asia to Russia. But starting from 2000, the uh, uh, migration dynamic changed and it became mainly labor migration. And first uh, it was uh, Tajiks and Kyrgyzs started migrating to Russia in search of labor because economies of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, they didn't have resources, extractive sectors. So that's why they were one of the first comers to to Russian labor market. And then Uzbek labor migration started only in the second half of 2000, so start uh, reaching its first peak in 2005. So this is this was period when Uzbek labor migration uh, became uh, more or less established. And then despite even though despite the fact that uh, the Uzbek labor migration started relatively late, but now nowadays, especially after 2014, Uzbeks became the largest migrant community in, in mm. Russia. And uh, so far they remain to be one of the dominant uh, actors in Russian labor market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm curious, you know, um, I think there's an obvious reason why why Russia, right? Because of this common experience of living in the Soviet Union, um, Russian as kind of a, a cultural connection. Um, but in, in your book, you talk briefly, very briefly, about going in, and seeing Uzbek migrants in Turkey. Um, and um, this was really interesting to me because you say, despite the fact that Turkey actually has like a better legal infrastructure for migrants, um, you found that the Central Asian migrants preferred Russia. Um, could you could you tell us maybe why um, and, and kind of offer some explanation there? I think this is a very interesting question, and this is also uh, in line with current developments in Central Asia also. Uh, first of all, why Central Asian migrants, especially Uzbeks, prefer Russia to Turkey is, is, can be explained by the established social networks uh, in, in Moscow. At the same time, labor migration uh, in Russia is also centered around village and regional identities. While in Turkey, it's not well established and migrants in Istanbul 
are are not organized around kinship and village networks. While in Russia, it's well established, and then it's easy to regulate the labor conditions. And also, when people don't get paid, it's usually the middlemen and workers. They often come from the same village or same district, and there is a uh, there are more informal channels, you know, ways to enforce contracts in the Russian labor market, as well as you have a lot of uh, channels for. for uh, for uh, for finding work and so it's a well established network. While in Istanbul, uh, it's still uh, in the state of uh, still underdeveloped, uh, despite the relatively liberal immigration regime in Turkey, migrants uh, uh, don't uh, don't have alternative ways to to find work and enforce contracts because. Non-payment of the salary is a, is, is a common problem in in Turkish labor market. Uh, this is very you also find same situation in Russian labor market. But at the same time, you have uh, an informal legal orders like uh, protection racketeers and then you know different street institutions in Russia that can act as kind of alternative legal system. Because uh, this is that's why I think migrants prefer to work more in Russia because they have control over their working conditions and uh, contracts in the labor market. Yeah, um, no, that's really interesting. And I definitely want to talk more about the kind of informal kind of shadow economy um, surrounding migrant labor in Russia. Um, but before we get there, I kind of I want to first set the base to to talk about this part of your argument, which in your in the title of the book, you refer to as, as a hybrid political regime. Um, I also saw that you you referred to Russia as kind of a weak state, um, weak in the in in the sense of its legal structure. So, could you tell us a little bit about what what do you mean by hybrid political regime? How how does Russia compare to other countries that receive large amounts of of migrant workers? Because um, because I think this is the key to then understanding um, these informal structures. At least that's the way I, I read it in your mm-hmm. book. I think this is very interesting, uh, relevant question. And the idea of using the concept of hybrid political regimes and migrants' experiences in such regimes is to kind of uh, engage with the broader theoretical debates about contemporary migration regimes. And when you do a literature review, most of the literature on migrants' experiences of the legal system, they are based on the experience of uh, migrant communities in Western-style democracies. And then uh, uh, undocumented status of the migrants, in, in, especially in the context of the West, is considered as some kind of dead end, where you don't have, where you can, where it's, you don't have much navigation. You know, uh, but in the uh, context of hybrid political regimes, such as Russia, Turkey, for example, uh, of course, you have a restrictive legal system, but at the same time, uh, there is a weak rule of law, and then the legal system is corrupt. And and then this is a you know point I'm making that in hybrid political regimes such as Russia, Turkey, uh, and also non, other non-democratic regimes, uh, you have uh, you have a different legal system. There is no strong rule of law culture. And this, actually, this factor uh, 
of course creates uh, problems for migrants, but at the same time, it has empowering effects in the sense that it gives more agency to migrants because uh, just uh, take the example of, uh, of uh, Sweden and Russia, for example, in Sweden, uh, just imagine uh, uh, undocumented migrant, migrant is caught by Swedish immigration official uh, and then in the Swedish context, it's highly unlikely that you can pay the bribe and get away. So it's it's it doesn't work here in Sweden. So you will you will be deported and you will you will face legal consequences. But in hybrid regimes like Russia, where you have big rule of law and corrupt legal system, migrants actually can pay bribes and then they can navigate the legal system. And there are many alternative ways to buy fake work permits. And and then when you are stopped by police, uh, you you can negotiate the amount of the bribe and. So in this sense, I think in typologies like Russia, Turkey, you know, you, you, you have a different legal system. And this that's why I'm arguing that when we try to understand my, how migrants adapt to the new legal system in, in, in hybrid political regimes, we need a different theoretical uh, methodological lens in order to understand migrants' legal adaptation, you know, patterns. Uh, that's why I argue that Con- concepts and uh, theories developed in the context of the West, they they cannot be applied to the, to the context of Russia because it's a different socio-legal context. That's why uh, I have a broader theoretical ambition by using the concept concept of hybrid political regimes. I am calling for a new legal and uh, for new research, for new projects which deal with uh, migrants' legal adaptation in. Non, non-Western migration regimes. So this is a theoretical ambition also. No, and that's really relevant. I mean, you know, um, obviously I don't um, read about this stuff too often um, from an academic, con, you know, academic kind of perspective, um, but I do follow kind of Central Asian migration like in the news and stuff, and you really don't get this perspective. I mean, typically if you see new laws coming into place or new restrictions on migrants, it's just seen as, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about it from kind of a U.S.-centered perspective where this is bad. This is this creates like no options for people uh, to continue to um, kind of seek, seek a, 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 you know, living wage or a livelihood in Russia. Um, but actually, um, you know, that is partially the case. But actually what you show is, is there's a surprising amount of illegality, informality, um, the emer- you know the kind of existence of a shadow economy, even racketeering, um, and these are all ways that that there's kind of a, a sub regime, a sub legal regime, or kind of enforcement regime um, under that official law. This was um, something really surprising to me. Um, my first question about this this level of illegality and informality is this is this something the state is aware of and acknowledges? Um, turns a blind eye to. Um, why, why would the state allow this to continue? Um, is, is it a wish or is it, is it they're simply incapable of, of bringing um, their laws into fruition? They don't care. Um, I'd be curious to hear what you think about that. Thank you very much. I think this is uh, one of the uh, important uh, elements of my book. Uh, in my book, I argue that actually uh, this is a mode of this is the main mode of migration governance in Russia, 
this has to do uh, with a conflicting interest between uh, among different Russian state institutions. Uh, on the one hand, you have very restrictive laws and policies aimed to manage migration in, in Russia, aimed to combat undocumented migration. But on the other hand, we have vested interests of Russian police officers, immigration officials, and border guards. Uh, so they all try to take their own peace from undocumented migration. So it's actually uh, uh, not profitable for uh, for Russian police officers, you know, having legal migrants, uh, documented migrants, because uh, they uh, they usually benefit a lot from having many undocumented migrants on the streets of, of Russia. Uh, at the same time, immigration officials also, they also benefit actually from having complicated uh, legal system because especially this is the case around residence registration papers, you know, where they make a lot of money uh, uh, by selling uh, registrations uh, before uh, before the introduction of multifunctional migration centers in Russia. There were also big business surrounding the queues in queues in uh, immigration offices. Many migrants had to queue, and if you wanted to get submit your documents faster, you had to pay to the intermediaries. So there were very big informal economy around it, and border guards also benefit a lot. For example, um, when migrants cross the border and when they get a new entry exit exit uh, exit stamp. Migrants usually pay 500 rubles, 1,000 rubles, and so this is there is a big informal economy around it. And even though Russia tries to legalize and manage migration, but on the other hand, the state officials who actually benefit from illegal migration, they make sure that this this illegality continues further and further. So this is a, I think this is a big migration industry, and there are many conflicting interests around it. And migrants also benefit themselves from from this, you know, uncontrolled migration situation in Russia. Yeah, and let's talk about some of those benefits. So you, you, you already alluded briefly to um, the way that this economy develops around migration paperwork, right? You know, um, official permits um, to to work legally in Russia. But one, one thing that you claim throughout the book is that it, it's nearly impossible to actually maintain um, legal work status as an Uzbek migrant in uh, Russia. But nonetheless, you're arguing that that um, this informal economy where, where Uzbek migrants are paying bribes um, to mostly to low-level police officers, right, um, uh, awards them some kind of agency in an otherwise very unforgiving legal environment, um, could you talk about that a little bit? How how does this how does the institution of, of bribery essentially um, actually um, how how can Uzbek migrants use that and do use that to their advantage? Yes, uh, about having a legal status and why it's impossible first. Uh, this depends on the context also. Let's, uh, for example, uh, even if migrant has all the documents required, when he or she is stopped by police, it's very hard to prove that you you have a legal status. Uh, this has to do with the uh, first residence registration system. 
and uh, it's actually it's a fact that n uh, no one is able to, uh, to get a, a residence registration from the address where they actually live. So migrants usually buy, uh, you know, address residence registration from intermediary companies and any police officers, you know, who stop migrants, they know that uh, the migrant has a problem with the residence registration. Even if, if, if it looks correct in the paper, uh, police can always claim that his uh, document is fake. So uh, police has also a, a lot of agency, uh, I mean, I mean uh, discretionary power in this sense. But on the other hand, uh, migrants, uh, uh, they know that they cannot be legal, and instead of trying to be legal, they usually buy uh, fake documents from, uh, from uh, intermediaries, from different underground printing services in, in Moscow, for example. And, and then instead of, for example, paying every month 5,000 rubles for patent and trying to be legal, instead migrants just buy fake documents for a couple of thousands of rubles. And uh, they, when they are stopped by police, they, they usually give 1,000 rubles or 2,000 rubles, uh, you know, bribe. So in this sense, you know, police, or they also understand that this is fake and they usually take the bribe. And then this is a kind of, win-win uh, situation for both sides. Migrants are also lowering the transaction cost, I mean the legalization cost by buying fake work permits and my uh, police also on the other hand making money by ignoring that, uh, that their documents are fake. So this is how you know the agreement between police officers and migrants work and uh, for when I usually go to Moscow, for example, I usually meet the same migrants and Every time uh, when I visit them, I, I'm surprised because years pass, time pass, but they, are, uh, they have no documents. But when I go to Moscow, they are still around, you know, despite having... And then we hang out in the street freely and we go to even to Kremlin, Red Square, and we socialize. And we, when we are stopped by police, they usually give bribe and then we just continue our, you know, uh, sightseeing in the city. And so this is... Uh, uh, of course, you know, first of all, I think when trying to understand this, you know, uh, this situation, I think uh, it depends on how you enter your fieldwork site. Uh, for example, if you find uh, migrants who migrant rights NGOs in Moscow, they usually uh, uh, try to portray migrants as victims without any agency and they are paying bribes and this is the, you know, dominant picture. And then you see also similar picture in national migration literature. So migrants are often described as victims, agencyless actors. But in my case, I enter the fieldwork through my village networks, through my classmates, through my neighbors who work in Moscow. And when I socialize with them, I think that, situ uh, of course, they suffer from, uh, from corruption. But at the same time, migrants themselves acknowledge that it's good that police officers uh, and immigration and borders, they take bribes. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to stay so long in, in Russia and uh, still support the family. So this is how, you know, these two sides of the... But in, in my book, my ambition was to describe migrants not just as victims, but I also wanted to cover the other side of the coin, you know, where migrants are navigating. And uh, if situation is so bad, I wondered why millions of 
migrants are able to stay in Russia illegally and still send money home. And so this was, a, you know, questions I was trying to understand. And then in my book, through different stories, you know, vignettes and interviews, you know, I try to illustrate the other side of the story, which is very often ignored in migration studies scholarship. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that came very, um, very. It came through very clear, um, and and that was one thing that that made this also really engaging. I think engaging reading. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about the um, kind of shadow economy and racketeering, but let's let's um, let's switch over and talk about your your field work, like how you. I know that you, for this work, you 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 were in Turkey for a little bit, but you traveled extensively between the Fergana Valley and Uzbekistan, where most of these migrants are coming from, um, and Moscow. Um, and you actually were able to track kind of the, the same, you know, um, either the same people in, in Fergana Valley and Moscow or their family members and kind of look at the connections um, between um, home and and in, uh, in Russia and, um, and you, you you kind of looked at you know the transnational side of this story, the way that the connections between the village and uh, Moscow actually um, impact one another, and I found this really interesting. So could you talk a little bit about that, and specifically um, tell us a little bit about um, how you found interviewees, um, you know, what it was like to kind of like spend time with these people? Um, I know in the book you make a good good uh, point to anonymize everyone. So um, the names of the villages are, are, are uh, fictitious. And I assume you're using fake names for a lot of these migrants. So yeah, um, I think listeners would, would really be interested to hear about that. Uh, this is a very interesting question. And then uh, uh, if I talk about the history and how I gain access, uh, I myself come from a migrant family. And I'm uh, I'm from rural Fergana, from one of the villages there, and I grew up there. And uh, it's uh, since I I think my father was also migrant worker in Moscow. He started uh, I think uh, business there. So, I mean, he was one of these you know traders you know who's who exported uh, agricultural products from our village to Russia, and this stories about racketeers and then informality i think this started from my childhood actually uh, and uh, and then you know being from this uh, village it's uh, it's already you know um, uh, in, in, you know uh, some kind of ch- it's a channel that you gain access to informants and uh, if when i go to my home village uh, you you cannot find any household without uh, migrant worker in in, uh, in Russia. So in this sense, you know, in my uh, field work, in my research, I didn't have to look for informants in Moscow. But when I went to visited Moscow, I just integrated into my existing village networks there. So I when I was there, I found myself surrounded by my, my village community because our village is a Moscow village. Because uh, uh, you know some villages are connected, uh, you know to uh, you know villages are connected to different Russian cities, and there is a kind of chain migration. So Moscow was a, uh, our village was directly connected to Moscow. So when I went there, uh, I I think I counted that 
I have more than 200 village members working in Moscow. So this meant that I just integrated and then uh, at the same time in my research I was interested in how this, you know, this uh, village networks uh, function in a new environment and what kind of transnational pressures come from village to Moscow and uh, and to and the things happening in Moscow among migrants, what impact has uh, on the everyday life and social relations in the village. So then, because when I visited Moscow, I saw that migrants were calling their home families, you know, neighbors on a daily basis, and there was a daily exchange of the information. And then during fieldwork in Moscow, I noticed that the behavior of migrants in Moscow very often was influenced by, you know, pressures, information coming from the village. This is how I got interested. Then I decided to understand how this daily flow of information via smartphones and social media affect you know the social processes in two in two different geographic locations. And then I started traveling between Moscow and Fergana. Every time when I visited Moscow, then I made another trip to Fergana to understand what's happening in the village. So this was, I think, this turned out to be very fruitful. When I started actually my research, I didn't have that intention. But after I I integrated into my village networks in Moscow, I found that this this other side of the board, you know, the Uzbek side, should also be included in my study. This is this is how it became the object of 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 my fieldwork. Mm-hmm. No, that's good, and um, I think that's it's also telling that. The, the research process itself helped inform your approach to this. I think, I think that that's important to know, um, and I think that gives it some credibility. Um, I, I actually want to dive into this a little bit more, because to me, this connection between village life and Fergana and, and things like dispute around, disputes around wages among migrant workers in Russia was really interesting. Um, you have a really good uh, kind of case here, um, with with a migrant who you call Misha, um, and and he was the head of, of a brigade of workers informally responsible for securing wages in Moscow. Could you tell us a little bit about this story, and um, you know how this actually ends up reshaping um, relations between households back in the village in Fergana? Uh, yes, this is I think one of the most exciting uh, parts of my fieldwork. Uh, it's it was it's uh, my fieldwork actually started with uh, with Misha when I visited Moscow first uh, in 2014 January. It was Misha who picked me up from Moscow's Sheremetyevo Airport, and then uh, then uh, uh, and he was also my classmate, you know, village village friend. Uh, and then uh, after meeting me at the airport, then he talked about his life. Because we met after ten years, and then it, we did a follow-up conversation, and then he said he was very proud that he said that I am a middleman, Pasrednik, and then helping our village members, and then I so far helped more than two hundred village members, and I fixed jobs, and so he described the situation as if everything works, and then the next day I met the brigada, you know, migrant workers from our village. And so things were working quite well. But at some point, I noticed that things were not working well. And then I traveled to the village. And then there were, uh, and to, to my surprise, all villagers were fully informed 
about what was happening in Moscow. So and then uh, it, uh, they they started scandal because Misha promised salary uh, and uh, and it was based on the trust between Misha and migrant workers and it didn't work. And then migrants uh, tried different ways to get their salary in Moscow and uh, but uh, they they couldn't get and they used the village pressure. And this is how I think this and story. Could, could you could yeah. you actually explain um, this system where? Misha is kind of the, the, the middleman, as you put it, and, and then there's a brigade of workers. So essentially, who are, who are they negotiating with? Um, because, yeah, like, could you set the context a little bit more to explain, like, why Misha becomes responsible for the rest of these workers? How, how does that happen? Misha came to Moscow uh, earlier than other migrants, and then he established himself in the migrant labor market. He first worked as a taxi driver. This is how he he made a lot of connections in the construction sector. So when you are a taxi driver, you are meeting, for example, many people. And then Misha, at some point, decided to change his job. And then he went to construction business. And then he got different orders, you know, from uh, from Russian middlemen, from different construction companies. And these companies and Russian middlemen, they were not connected to migrant workers. So Misha, had, uh, Misha was uh, between Uzbek migrants and the construction companies. So construction companies trusted Misha and gave uh, uh, and asked him to find workers. And then Misha, he had to uh, hire his own village members because he enjoyed trust and then there was a because workers also knew that if Misha doesn't keep his work they could put pressure through the village so this uh, this existence of enforceable trust between Misha and workers established this informal working arrangement and if Misha for example approached migrants from some other village or from some other province of Uzbekistan it's it, it's highly unlikely that they would trust Misha so yeah, so trust was a, a main basis of the relationship here. But when Misha was not able to deliver the trust, uh, to deliver the salary, then uh, then uh, workers had they were able to use uh, informal pressures from the village to enforce a contract. So this is how it works. You know, the Misha also takes a percentage uh, according to the contract, and this is called handshake contract. You know, between Misha. Russian company and uh, migrant workers. So all sides shake hands and then uh, Russian company takes uh, responsibility to pay the salaries when the work is done. Misha makes sure that the work is done properly according to the state standards. And then uh, Misha, uh, then workers also take responsibility and say uh, they they pay 15, 20% of their salary to Misha for his uh, intermediary role. And this is how, uh, you know, a contract is established. And all these relations are based on handshake and trust. So this is how construction business works in Moscow, mainly through the trust-based, uh, you know, working arrangements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this brings up another really important point, um, which is about, um, you know, throughout the book, we see different kinds of challenges that uh, Uzbek migrant workers face. And one of them that comes up in this story, but not only in this story, is wage protection. Um, it's, it's very common that these Russian companies are trying to cheat Uzbek migrant workers out of wages because they don't have the legal protections, because they're kind of in a 
you know, precarious legal position, um, that at least through formal legal structures, that limits their ability to demand wages. But what you show um, in this case and in other cases is that there are other informal tools that these workers can use to demand wages. So um, aside from um, pestering Misha's parents back in the Fergana Valley, um, what are some other ways that um, migrant workers who have been cheated out of their wages can can put pressure on employers to to deliver or, or middlemen to deliver those wages? It's uh, street level institutions, street institutions, and very often migrants refer to them as uh, protection racketeers. And these racketeers, they are, they are part of the criminal world. And very often, uh, when you read the literature, they are described uh, in a negative sense, meaning that they extort money from migrant workers. And in uh, in my field work, uh, I try to make a distinction between extortion racketeer and uh, and racketeers who enforce contracts for a small fee. Uh, and uh, this institution is very established in uh, in the migrant labor market. Uh, and uh, for, and this is uh, uh, since migrants work illegally, it's uh, not possible to approach any state institution, and also it's not possible to get salaries through migrant rights organizations because uh, work is done informally and it's very hard to prove uh, prove the formal uh, connection. So that's uh, one challenge. But uh, on the other hand, you have. Uh, uh, street institutions, uh, racketeers, and uh, it's usually Chechens, Dagestanis, and very often, uh, recently, it's uh, Tajiks also started uh, acting as racketeers. And um, just imagine, if migrant worker uh, couldn't get his salary, just uh, take the example of, for example, 100,000 Russian rubles. Uh, so they usually approach racketeer, and racketeer uh, uh, takes 20%, 25% of this amount, uh, and then uh, solves the dispute. And the uh, dispute is solved according to the street law. And racketeer uh, gets a phone number of the employer. Uh, it, it could be Russian employer, it could be Azerbaijani or Armenian, or it could be even Uzbek middleman, as, as is in the case of Misha, for example. And uh, Chechen usually uh, is, acts like a Kadi, you know, the judge, street judge. And then he... Uh, one condition according to the street law, migrant must be honest and tell the true story. Uh, then Chechen uh, takes the case and then he takes responsibility. Then after getting the phone number of the employer, Chechen gives three de- uh, talk, contacts employer and uh, checks the de- details, verifies the de- uh, de- uh, information provided by the migrant worker. And if the migrant worker's information is correct, then Chechen gives a deadline of three days or more uh, to the employer and then uh, and gives warning. If the employer is not paying the salary in three days, his life will be uh, in, the, in danger. So Chechens are usually known for, uh, for being very violent and for, uh, for being vespredel, you know, limitless uh, in Russian context. So this is how, you know, the... Uh, contracts uh, enforced. And these days, I'm uh, recently I conducted another uh, project, another fieldwork with Uzbek uh, ex-prisoners who served prison sentence in in Russian prisons. And uh, and in my new project also, I see that 
prison, uh, prison and street life is well connected. So Uzbek migrants also connect contact, uh, you know, prisoners serving sentences, and they are usually connected to the Russian criminal world, especially the thieves in law, and then they also make a lot of money. So. Uh, so that I think uh, during my field work, I didn't know. Uh, I I had uh, you know several stories, but after doing my recent field work, I I'm now confident that it's well established institution in Russian context, and they are very much uh, they are very actively involved in the regulation of disputes in the migrant labor market. Uh, you as you find more detailed stories in my book, uh, but here I think I cannot. Uh, and due to time limits, I cannot uh, describe. Uh, I mean, tell, narrate all the stories here. Right, right, mm. and and there is rich, rich material mm. here in the book. Um, and and I would encourage listeners um to 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 read the book and check it out. Um, and and we'll talk more about how where you can access the book, um, towards the end of the interview. Um, I kind of had a follow up question, which is, you know, you talk about the threat of violence. Um, is is violence the main way? That these um, that these contracts are enforced, or is this kind of an only in, in extreme cases? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, obviously, you you didn't witness the violence personally, but um, do you have any sense of how widespread the acts of violence are in these negotiations, or is it just the threat of potential violence that shapes these interactions? Mm-hmm. As uh, in my experience, in my interviews. It's uh, it's um, mainly the threat of violence that uh, forces employers to to pay salaries of of migrants. But there are some exceptional cases where uh, actually violence took place. But uh, but but it's mainly the threat of violence, and uh, also the Chechens are very assertive, and then and they. Uh, they they use uh, special jargons, you know, argot from prison, and the, I mean the manners and the way they express uh, uh, a warning is 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 usually sufficient to uh, to secure uh, salary. And you know, this is a fascinating um, topic, and and like you said, there's there's plenty to read. If if listeners are interested in this, they can find more details um, in the book. I found this. Um, section on racketeering particularly surprising. Um, it's not something that I really knew much about, um, and I, I, I I'm interested to hear that you're actually looking more into the connections between the criminal kind of sphere in in Russia and migrant labor. Um, so maybe we can talk about that towards the end of the interview. Um, I'd like to switch and talk a little bit about uh, work, finding work, and and finding housing. Um, what the conditions like are like for for migrants in Moscow, um, where they live, how they d- and and how they decide where to work and and where to live. Because I know in in um, in your book you talked about like these special sections of of Moscow where workers um, where there's kind of an um, an understanding that um, these are not places where workers should live and and therefore like police. Um, extract more bribes from them. Could you talk a little bit about that? And maybe are there places that are more welcoming or more kind of forgiving for workers com- compared to to other regions and and within Moscow and why that might be the case? Uh, usually, the type of accommodation housing depends on 
which sector you work. If you are a construction worker, you often uh, work in the same place, you, you often live in the same place where you work. This was the case, for example, in the uh, uh, chapter uh, about Misha and his work, his working brigade, for example. Um, uh, but if you work in a bazaar, for example, and there is a special place in Moscow, Food City, it's um, one of these uh, migrant uh, enclaves in, in Moscow, and then uh, usually there are uh, special accommodation facilities in uh, in, in, in the territory of uh, Bazaar. Uh, but uh, very often, the most common form of accommodation housing is a shared apartment. And it's called Koika Mesta. And usually 15 to 20 migrants uh, live together in the same apartment. Uh, and uh, then you find, when you enter this, uh, this kind of Koika Mesta apartments, uh, it's, it's also called Vizinevi Kvartiri. Rubber apartments uh, because many migrants live in a small apartment, and it's usually find, you find bunk beds, and it's usually crowded. Many migrants living together, uh, and they usually pay uh, five thousand rubles, approximately seventy eighty dollars per month. It's uh, it's affordable for many migrants. So I think and these uh, living places accommodations are far below the standard, uh, and. Uh, uh, and conditions are uh, are very poor. Uh, it's not livable. But this is how you know migrants, you know, uh, live in Russia. So, so we're talking about um, an apartment where a typical Russian family would live, right? A couple, three to four people, um, which is already somewhat small. Yeah. Um, and and how many migrants are living in these Kokoi Mesta? Yeah. Just take example of, for example. Uh, 80, 90 square meters apartment, then you find 15, uh, sometimes even 18 migrants living in this place. And uh, they, when you enter apartment, you don't uh, actually, if you live in this kind of apartment, you don't, uh, you usually buy mattress space, you know, space which is enough for one mattress. And even the kitchen of this apartment is used as a sleeping place. So, so Every uh, every meter of this apartment is for sale. You know the, um, that's why uh, it's possible to have uh, up to fifteen twenty migrants in this in such small apartments. And surely they're making some kind of agreement with the owner of the flat, right? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I can imagine that there's a similar underground economy developing around this because um, I know maybe this wasn't the case when you were. Uh, doing your field work, but now you have to, as like you're, you're supposed to register if you're renting uh, an apartment. Always registered there in this apartment, because so, uh, no no Russian would agree to register Central Asian migrants because this is has to do also with this uh, with the uh, uh, legal system. Also, you know, the, uh, you cannot have 15, 20 people in the same apartment. Uh, also, there is a old Soviet understanding mentality that if you register someone, this person might get ownership rights over your apartment. So this is not true legally, but this is how the tradition from Soviet times, you know, comes and many Moscovites, you know, they are afraid of registering people in their apartment. Mm -hmm. But but uh, the owner is probably also benefiting from this situation, right? So we see that there's there's some kind of 
yeah. informal economy developing around? You, you, for example, in order to rent such apartment, you usually get it from special agencies. Eh? And for example, I, I, I get this apartment from the agency. Uh, there are special, you know, private, you know, uh, agencies there. And uh, for example, I rent it for 50 or 40,000 Russian rubles. And then I put 20 people uh, or 15 people and I charge them 5,000 rubles and I make 15, 20,000 rubles extra every month. As, and this is, it's usually the migrants with Russian passport or migrants who, who are well established in the Russian labor market. So it's also the uh, uh, landlord is also uh, Uzbek in this case. For, and then he's renting the mattress space to others. And of course, uh, it's not possible, you know, legally possible to have 15, 20 people. But, uh, you know, Uzbek migrant who is organizing this apartment for others is usually paying monthly share to the local police officer. So, so that's why police officers, he knows that there are 15, 20 people living in, the, in his neighborhood and he's ignoring this, uh, this, uh, this legal infraction. Uh, because he is also getting money from it, and then uh, then migrants they try to be as calm as possible because there are many Russians neighbors, and uh, when 15, 20 people living in the same apartment, there might be complaints, and if they call the you know, immigration service or police officers, uh, police, uh, then there might be trouble. That's why uh, if you are a landlord and renting part uh, mattress space to 15 migrants. You have to make sure that there is no noise and people are not taking shower after 10 or 11 and people are not making noise. So it's, I think it's a very uh, difficult job also for, for, for uh, the landlords also. Great. Um, yeah, this is really fascinating. And, and um, I'm personally excited to look at, at where your work continues. Um, we're kind of nearing the end of the interview, so I want to come back to kind of the bigger picture. Um, so with this work, what do you want people to know about um, Uzbek and other Central Asian migrants working in Russia? Is there something you feel is, or I'm sure there is, what's missing from the media portrayals, whether in Russia or in the West or even in Central Asia? And, and what's the bigger point that you hope readers and listeners will take away? Uh, in this book, uh, I... First uh, ambition I have is a, is to engage with a broader migration studies literature, uh, and then uh, this is where I position my book. And in my book, I argue that uh, undocumented status of the migrant should, uh, in hybrid regimes such as Russia, should not be seen as the end of the end of end of migration journey. But it's part of the migrants, you know, daily life, and it's not a dead end in this sense, which which we often find in uh, Western migration, you know, Western uh, literature dealing with uh, with migrants' legal status. So, so this is what makes a, a corrupt legal system and uh, weak rule of law uh, provides uh, uh, opportunities actually for migrants to to. Uh, to navigate the system. That's uh, one of the key points I make and I try to engage with the socio-legal debates also uh, with this argument. And the second aim is uh, is here is also to contribute to Central Asian studies literature also because very often we, uh, we, we see 
negative portrayals of migrants in r Russian media also that they are stealing jobs and then there is a rising xenophobia uh, in Russian society. But uh, these people, uh, you know, through their daily life uh, problems, and uh, they are actually contributing to uh, to Russian economy. And uh, this is, I think, a big benefit. Uh, and uh, I think this is something that needs to be uh, considered. Uh, and in my re uh, research, I argue that uh, uh, since the Russian state is not providing decent conditions for uh, migrant labor market, and many migrants are working in the shadow economy, this is creating a separate parallel world of migrants based on its own economy and legal order. And this has big, big ramifications, uh, repercussions for the law and society and for rule of law in Russia. And this is shaping also Russian society and also providing uh, uh, and reinforcing actually the, uh, actually the uh, uh, organized crime and criminal world in, in Russia. So this is... And then this is where you see why many migrants, you know, because of their desperate conditions, they are becoming radicalized. And, and there are rumors that uh, migrants are becoming uh, religious. And, and uh, many migrants, they, uh, for example, they joined ISIS also because of their precarious conditions in, in Russia. So in this book, actually, I, of course, I am talking about the agency of the migrants, but at the same time, uh, I'm not... Uh, uh, saying that migrants uh, uh, migrants are uh, you know have a good conditions, but rather uh, they are trying to make best of the bad situation in, in Russian context, and uh, there is also need for Central Asian governments, particularly Uzbek Uzbek states, I think, to better protect the rights of migrant workers. Uh, yeah, these are I mean these are also policy considerations that need to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, two, two final questions. So um, you, you alluded a, a little bit to some future projects that you're working on related to um, kind of the prison culture and um, just in general, like criminal networks within Russia mm -hmm. and that and the connection between criminal networks and, and migrant labor networks. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your future work plans, your future projects, and also... Um, since this is the Central Asian Studies kind of podcast, could you tell us a, another book that you've read recently within Central Asian Studies that, that you particularly liked? Or, um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear if you have anything to share. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for the question. And actually, it's, uh, now I'm working on two projects. Uh, one uh, first project is about uh, uh, comparative study of uh, of Central Asian labor migration in Russia and Turkey. And I'm doing uh, intensive ethnographic fieldwork in, in Istanbul. Uh, so, and I'm using the same methodologies uh, to, to study how Uzbek migrants uh, uh, adapt to the Turkish, uh, Turkish legal system. Uh, and this is actually connected to the Russian, uh, to this book project that we are now discussing. Because after 2014, when Russia introduced uh, entry ban system, many Uzbek migrants got entry ban and they uh, reoriented towards Turkish labor market. So that's why uh, through the life stories, autobiographies of migrants, I'm trying to understand uh, the life trajectories of uh, Uzbek migrants in 
in Russia and Turkey. So this is, a, and I already got contract from Palgrave for this book project. So I'm scheduled. Uh, I I'm going. Uh, I'm going to finalize this book uh, during this summer. So this is an ongoing project. Second book project, which also uh, uh, connected to this project, is about uh, Uzbek migrants who served prison sentences in Russian penal institutions. So, and then uh, here, I think I will have more in-depth, sick uh, description of the street-level institutions and the migrants, and this is, will be follow-up study. And then I will have I, I already collected rich ethnographic data last year through fieldworks uh, in in Fergana in Uzbekistan. These are the two projects that will be follow up to this book project. So in this sense, I see my uh, this this book we are discussing now as the first part, and then second and third part of the book is 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 coming soon. So that's uh, uh, that's something. And uh, about uh, about uh, books that you that you want me to nominate uh, to suggest for Central Asian readers is I think. Uh, uh, I uh, there are many books that is coming out these days. Mm, which book? Uh, I think you one suggestion if you because I know I I'm more in line with this uh, with migration studies you know literature and uh, for example book by Agnieszka Kubal, uh, immigration and refugee law in Russia. Uh, she's uh, in my book. I'm looking at. Uh, into migrants' experience in the street, but she is uh, providing more in-depth understanding of how immigrants navigate uh, the legal system within the state institutions such as courts and immigration offices. So, if you want to gain more holistic understanding, more full picture of how the immigration uh, system works in Russia in, uh, and how Central Asian migrants navigate it, I advise to read Agnieszka Kubal's uh, book. Uh, with Cambridge University Press. This is called Immigration and Refugee Law uh, in Russia. Also about uh, Central Asian studies, I think uh, I also advise you to read a book by uh, Erika Erika Marat, and she has a very interesting book with Oxford University Press, and she's talking about the politics of police reform in in Central Asia and Kyrgyzstan. This is also one of the books yeah and in, in the second book we actually had i i interviewed erica so if if listeners are interested in that they can go back and listen to that interview as well um i think back in the fall sometime um so yeah um thanks again uh so uh for listeners uh this was um uh rustem Urimboyev, dr rustem Urimboyev, and we were discussing his book migration and hybrid political regimes navigating the legal landscape in russia um and rustem um um i was hoping you could tell us a little bit so this book was published open access so where can readers um uh access that that copy of the book online uh, yes this book is published open access i wanted to make it accessible to everyone uh, so that people don't have to pay for it and uh, you you can just type uh, my name and uh, book name and then you will be guide uh, you will be directed to University of California press website and this is where you can download it it free of charge so just uh, press uh, my 
surname Urinboy and California Press, and I think uh, Google will give you right link and you just uh, download it. And we'll we'll put that in the in the mm -hmm. description as well, mm -hmm. so they'll be able to access it mm -hmm. from there. Um, thanks again, Rustem. It was a real pleasure uh, to have you on the show and and to discuss your work. Thank you very much.